for another exciting episode of the Development Hell podcast, episode number 14, Ed. And uh, I actually counted right this time, right? It is number 14. It's uh, 10 quattro. 10 quattro. Uh, we're fresh off our awesome success at uh, Tech 12. Uh, thank you very much to everybody who came out and watched us uh, do our shtick in front of a live studio audience. I had a lot of fun, and I got to hit Ed a bunch of times, which is payback for many other things that people don't know about. But yep. it, it was, it was, I found it very cathartic. I don't know about you, Ed. I had some things to explain away to people. Um, like they would ask me, and why do I have those bruises? And are you hitting a hammer against something? What's going on? I am doing nothing. It must be our, our silent guest. Justin, are you hammering oh, something in there? No, I was just cracking my knuckles, getting ready for this. Oh, he's getting wow. ready for a big scrap. Right, yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> right? like a piano player. So, uh, so, Justin, say hello to the internet and tell everyone a little bit about yourself and why you think that why you think we've shanghaied you into being on our podcast today. <laughs> well, I have no idea as to the latter. Um, but my name is Justin Searles. Hello, internet. Um, I, I believe that you found me on Twitter. Is that accurate, Chris? Found. That is accurate. Yes, a, a recommendation from I believe my brain says it was Elizabeth Naramore said uh, that sure. I should I should talk to you about this sort of stuff. Yeah, Elizabeth so, might be the only person I know that's kind of like engaged with the PHP community, um, and so that's very possible. Uh, yeah, so so I am a. Uh, software developer. I live in Columbus, Ohio. I have a small software studio called Testable. And um, lately I do uh, a lot of JavaScript, a lot of CoffeeScript, some Ruby on Rails development. Um, I'm, I'm a heritage enterprise Java developer, so I used to do a lot of Java EE stuff. Um, and before that, I actually did have about a year or so of PHP experience. Um, and uh, some some. Since I'm since I'm just laying it all out there. Wait, what else? It sounded like it, it broke up. What was that final thing? Oh, just Flash development. Oh, awesome. Yeah, it was pretty so great. so before before we go any further, because you did mention uh, Liz Naramo, we should also thank our sponsor uh, Engine Yard, who once again, uh, despite Liz having never listened to an episode, agreed to give us some more money, despite all the horrible things we said about Engine Yard. But Engine Yard, as most people should be aware, is one of the trailblazers and leaders of platform as a service, and we love the uh, the crazy people behind Orchestra. Io, which is their, which is Engine Yard's uh, PHP platform as a service offering. Um, Helgi and David and all those guys, I love you guys. I always love running into you guys at conferences. And also, I think Ed, is it fair to say that we can uh, also like to thank uh, Paul Reinheimer and the folks at the Wonder Network for yeah. agreeing to for agreeing to let us use up a bunch of their unused bandwidth for uh, the uh, live uh, streaming of. Uh, of our rambling here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, Paul and Will, I think I got his name right, Will. I know, you know, we know Paul for a long time, but there's some mysterious guy named Will, I think, who works there and I think actually does all the work and Paul just tells him what to do. And um, anyway, uh, so Wonder Network, who uh, have, uh, they've created a lot of really interesting tools. Uh, Wonder Proxy is one thing for doing lots of, uh, like, uh, geolocation testing and also something called natural load testing, uh, which sounds horrible, but it is a really cool like uh, thing to simulate real-world traffic um, uh, 
against uh, for doing uh, like stress testing on your website, which is really awesome. So uh, the Wonder Network guys are uh, sponsoring our bandwidth and not just sponsoring, but actually providing it. Uh, so the live uh, broadcasting stuff is all thanks to them. And they also uh, they're also hosting the video file, which was a big old file, that one gigabyte video file from our thing at tech. So we have to really thank them for for putting uh, not only just throwing money at us or anything, but actually putting time into, uh, into helping us out. So that was really cool of them. Thanks, Paul. We appreciate it, buddy. Yay. And so also to let people know that we're going to start, uh, having, um, on the nights that we do record stuff that will be on Freenode, uh, the awesome IRC network in the, the uh, Dev Hell channel, so you can come in and hang out and hurl insults at us and ask us questions and stuff. So let's uh, let's get on to this stuff. So the main reason I think why uh, uh, Liz suggested that I get in touch with Justin because Justin is one of those poor tortured souls who is into testing things um, and automated testing and all the other wonderful stuff. And so I was joking about this uh, before we started recording was that. Um, really, I think the only programming community out there that is less interested in testing stuff, really, than PHP is JavaScript. So why don't, why don't we start off with uh, talking about that, Justin? Like, what do you see that – I know in PHP, one of the major challenges in getting people just to agree to do testing is that because it's really not part of, of people's introduction to using PHP, simply because PHP has that super low barrier of entry, and you can really just mash all your shit together right from the beginning. Business logic, display logic, conditional stuff, all this stuff, so you don't really think having structured things. Now, JavaScript isn't isn't the same in that you can combine all that stuff, but like, what do you think are some of the reasons why testing seems to be even less loved in JavaScript than it is in uh, the PHP world? I love that you say it, JavaScript. That's how yeah. we pronounce it up here in Canucks, so get no, used to it. No, I've got several, several of my favorite developers are from Saskatchewan and, and Newfoundland. Um, there you go. And, and Scotia. And they all say Java and JavaScript, and I love uh, I love poking fun at them and their poutine and their craft dinner. Um, <laughs> uh, no, you know, I think that uh, there's a lot of truth to what you said. So, so JavaScript and PHP are similar in that they have very low barriers of entry. Um, that a lot of applications are really just, you know, one big file or one big mess of concatenated spaghetti. Um, and, and you can get away with that. And a lot of, you know, professional development gets done in that manner. Uh, so, so from that perspective, they're really similar, right? Like there's this relatively low, uh, expectation about how much structure and how much thought goes into the design of the code for both PHP and JavaScript. I think one of the differences is that PHP actually has a, you know, uh, community of users. It's a very large community of users, but I mean, they're all looking at basically the same technical stack and they probably share a lot more in common than you'd say of like the world at large of people who use JavaScript because everybody is stuck with JavaScript, whether they like it or not, which isn't true of PHP. Um, so one of the things that I've noticed with JavaScript is that, um, the the kind of cultural and social mores change from community to community. So, like, I, just from several years of focusing really narrowly on making my JavaScript better and helping other people improve JavaScript, is that I can totally smell out a Rubyist JavaScript from a, a .NET developer's JavaScript to a Java developer's JavaScript. Um, that 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 the kind of backend community informs a lot of how the front end works and that they don't talk to each other about how they do front end stuff, which is one reason why there's like 8,000 JavaScript frameworks that all do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah, like PHP mean, too. Yeah. I mean, also it reminds me too of like when, you know, sometimes looking at people's code in other lands, 
just you can kind of say oh you can kind of say oh that's like a oh that's a python code uh, written by a php guy where the sort of the the best practices and patterns for doing things kind of bleed over. Um, I mean, it's natural that, you know, when you're really familiar with one language and you move to another, that until your brain kind of learns the idiomatic ways of doing things that you're, you're going to see it. So it's kind of interesting that you've noticed that, that distinction. I think, I, I think though it's, uh, I think JavaScript's kind of interesting in that. I'm not sure there's anything close to an idiomatic, like there's a, like there's some pretty uh, wide ranging like approaches to it, and I think a lot of that has to do with the malleability of the language. Um, just the like nailing down some kind of idiomatic JavaScript is really hard, or there's always going to be people who write it just completely differently. You could really make it look very different um, syntactically, I think. Yeah. So you can get away with bloody murder in a lot of ways with JavaScript. And because the universe of people using JavaScript, there's no way that they could all ever coalesce and agree to something, you know, cause it's just too big and it's too, um, uh, disparate. Uh, that, that means you're never really going to land on one true idiomatic JavaScript. I think that the best you can do is probably have, you know, a, a core group of people who, who are really maybe, you know, uh, become well known on Twitter, right? Like um, uh, some some of the bigger names that we know in, in, in sort of like the web and HTML5 communities and see and follow and, and kind of do as they do. But really that hasn't happened either. And that's why we still see all of these arguments about whether to have semicolons or not, or whether to have commas in the beginning of lines or the end of lines. And, and you could see, you know, very large communities kind of just collide on hacker news over that kind of stuff. Uh, because there's so, no there's no ruling vendor, there's no benevolent dictator like almost every other language or tech stack has. So why do you think that we haven't seen that this thing that you're talking about hasn't happened, where where people have really gotten around um, one or two sort of high profile JavaScript uh, users the way that they structure their code and the idioms they like to use? Why why do you think it just hasn't happened that people have jumped on board? Is it just simply because there's so many different ways that you can write your JavaScript that people are just are kind of content to to you know to do things their own way? Well, you know, very few people set out to write some JavaScript because until very, very recently, you couldn't build an application with just JavaScript. Some other language had to be the driver. Um, so, so typically, uh, JavaScript was just, you know, uh, stuff that got kind of, you know, it, it was sprinkles that got sprinkled on top of whatever the server-side stack that was rendering all the HTML was doing. You know, like, so... Uh, the way that I see a lot of people, probably most people, go about writing JavaScript is they start with, say, if they're doing Ruby on Rails, they'll start with um, just very basic progressive enhancement, completely static, you know, models, views, controllers. It renders some HTML. They get the basic CRUD operations down, and then the customer asks for, well, I, you know, I want some dy- dynamism here. I want some AJAX here. I want some glitter here. And then, and then the extent to which m- probably ninety percent of the internet has with JavaScript is just adding a little tiny bit, like that last little mile of interaction, um, on top of their otherwise completely static web application. So, so. Part of why you know you don't see consistent JavaScript is the same reason you don't see well structured JavaScript. Is the same reason you don't see well tested JavaScript, and why you don't see people talking and thinking hard about it or getting you know um, uh, feeling like there's a lot of peer pressure on them to do a good job writing it is because it's literally an afterthought for for most projects. Um, and that's just now that you know there's just now starting to be a sea change now with so many applications kind of paving the way in terms of what a fat client 
web application is capable of that a whole bunch of people are panicking and realizing, oh my goodness, I probably better get good at this um, because they're starting to feel buried by just how much JavaScript is necessary to to build a web application with the same sort of dynamic behavior that users are starting to expect. Um, what are I'm I'm interested in knowing like what kinds of uh, libraries and stuff you're using to build your fat client stuff. Oh yeah. And I guess when we talk about that, what I mean, I'm talking about the, uh, like browser based applications where, you know, yeah, I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about, but the, uh, the, like the, where you're, you're essentially put, putting all of your logic in the browser as much as you can possibly. And what are you doing on the back end too? Like, how are those working together? Yeah, so so um, typically for the front end, um, the two frameworks I like the most are uh, Backbone.js and Underscore.js, which I, I think is personally more valuable to my own productivity than, than Backbone alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Backbone and Underscore, I, 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 that's my go-to. That's what I actually use when I sit down to work on something. Right. Um, but part of the reason I like Backbone is that it's, I think it represents a backlash to the, the magical, automagic you know, web frameworks, the, including Rails, but also those inspired by Rails uh, that, that have so much sitting underneath the hood that they require this, either they require the universe or they require a ton of cognitive overhead for the user to kind of just carry with them all this tribal knowledge about the magical conventions to follow. Um, Backbone couldn't be more different. I mean, Backbone's like 700 lines of code. Um, maybe now it's like a thousand, but it's, it, it's readable within a couple hours. There, there's really, you know, no man behind the curtain. It's just a, you know, a pattern for encapsulating stuff better than big, hairy balls of spaghetti code. Um, and that's really all, you know, I need that and a little, like a way to, um, you know, uh, have a good event system so I can write, write event driven code and maybe, uh, a little bit of guidance on how to, uh, sync with a server. And, and that's really most of what backbone does. Um, for, for folks who don't mind the magic of, of say rails or grails or, uh, whatever PHP folks use, uh, or Django, um, I think that, that ember.js, by you know Yehuda and Tom Dale really fits that need well. Uh, it, it seeks to be more of an like a, a a framework by which you build applications on top of, as opposed to just you know um, a handful of base classes to extend from that get you a lot of boilerplate out of the way, which right. is more what Backbone is. Right. I uh, you know I've uh, been messing with Backbone here and there for a long time, but what I have found like actually trying to start sort of a larger application with it is that it's really, it took me like a few days just to find like the way and how I'm going to structure things. And I think that's intentional, (laughs) right? Um, They don't sort of say, here is the, uh, I keep using this word, but here's the idiomatic way of structuring a backbone application. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's, it definitely, um, it's definitely challenging when uh, you're first starting out, like, because, you don't have like there's not an obvious place to go to find best practices. Yeah, so right. so fun, funny story. Um, I I a few years ago I had a, a client experience and it was abundantly clear on day one that that to deliver on the promise of what the software they wanted really required mm-hmm. would would force us to write a ton of JavaScript and so we had to get really serious really fast about. Um, crafting it just as well as we'd craft uh, that team was a Java team uh, just as well as we'd craft our Java code. And what I noticed was that by spending like 15 minutes thinking about JavaScript hard and talking about it a little bit, I was suddenly like a, a qualified JavaScript expert. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, that's pretty much all it took. And so I, you know, I've gotten, you know, a little bit of notoriety in, in my dev community 
as like the guy to talk to about JavaScript, but I don't feel like it was particularly earned. Like all I've been doing is just like writing a lot of it and, and, and talking about it a lot and trying to help people focus on it. Um, but, but it, I say that to preface, you know, that backbone really was a mind bender for me. Um, backbone did not make sense to me right away. I mean, like it intuitively made sense a little bit. Like when I read the documentation, I was like, Ooh, this looks really nice, but I clearly just missed the point. The first three or four times I, I sat down to use it. Uh, and I think that, um, one thing helped, helped the light bulb go off. And that was the, the peep code screencasts. Mm. I think I watched the first two of them and the, the illustration that, that helped my brain realize how it was really supposed to work was uh, an illustration of a pinball table with a few of those little, and I don't know, pinball parlance, um, those things off which, you know, the pinball bounces and, and they make dramatic sounds and it bounces further. Um, so if bumpers. you imagine bumpers, bumpers, they're called. All right, cool. <laughs> I knew one of you would. Take care of that. Glad you uh, so, so if you start with a pinball and you throw it into the system and the pinball represents an event, like a user clicks on something, um, that event's going to first hit, you know, a bumper that might represent a view that, that's, that's delegated to, to, to that event. Uh, and then that view might in turn, uh, you know, change something on a model and effectively bounce it off the bumper. And then that, that model might have other things that are binding to change events on the model's attributes. And uh, that would represent a bounce off the bumper again. And you might have, you know, it's totally okay and it's totally natural for an event to actually trigger some totally indeterminate, at least from our perspective when we're writing the code, number of subsequent events, and that that's okay. And that's totally different from um, traditional object-oriented message passing that isn't really event-heavy, where we expect to, like, procedurally really understand, especially when we're writing tests, procedurally understand exactly what order everything's going to happen in and who and, and what's the net effect of every input going to be. Um, so learning to let go and really just try to uh, uh, really limit the amount of traditional method calling that I do in exchange for trying to figure out how could I solve this problem in, in an event-y way or in an asynchronous way, um, that, that was the key for me. That's interesting because um, I, I guess the – and maybe it's okay. I think one of the things I've been wondering a lot about, like as I've been structuring larger backbone applications, is how much – like I, I think it, in the back of my mind I've been thinking about testability and like modularity of stuff because we're – at least the stuff I'm doing also is using the required JS library. So you have like AMD wrappers for everything. And um, – like I think I was worried about things like having a global event listener and stuff like this because it's like, well, how much, you know, how much of that is 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 then is that going to limit my testability somehow? Or maybe I'm overthinking it. Like maybe it's okay. Like if I can just test how the whole application works and and it's it's you know certain parts of it aren't going to uh, aren't really going to be testable on their own and that's okay. Right. You know, I'm just not, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm sort of not sure because I just, I'm not, I feel not familiar enough with the, uh, with the, I guess just, I haven't built a hundred of these yet. So I don't know like what the best practices should be, or like, I haven't learned those kind of things from, from that. So I'd be interested to hear what you kind of think about that. Well, um, just to, to hold for later, um, I'd like to know why you, why you chose to dive into require JS and AMD right off the bat. I, 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 I sick, um, I, I like punishing myself, I guess. Um, <laughs> so it's really, I wanted to follow the, uh, 
a standard that that another one of our developers had already kind of set up, and he had built his stuff with Backbone and Require. So I sort of wanted to follow. So that that was established as a base pattern. So I wanted to have some consistency in what we were building. Yeah. Well, you know, it just it, it has the side effect of being. Um, uh, constraining. I mean, required JS is intentionally constraining because right. it's trying to control the, um, you know, dependency chains in a, in a language that couldn't care less about the concept of a dependency, right? Like a JavaScript program is literally equivalent to the cat- concatenation of all the files, like right. based on whatever load order is defined. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I haven't really, I, I personally haven't found much of a need for require because I try to just maintain the load order <laughs> of my own scripts. Right. Um, yep. Mm-hmm. And so I haven't found it to be particularly useful. And then the several times that I've tried to adopt it, I found um, uh, just enough annoyance uh, that you know maybe it, maybe the annoyance is that um, getting it to work with my Jasmine test has been annoying, or that uh, defining a required JS module feels exactly the same as maintaining a manifest of. Uh, files to be loaded by like the asset pipeline, right? right? So it's just like moving the exact same task into something else, but I still have that first task. Um, so it doesn't really solve a problem for me that I really feel like I suffer. But if I had a massive application, then I probably would be forced to refactor into it uh, or, or something like it. But I think that tackling that um, uh, on day one would probably, you know, just be... I try, I try to encourage people not to try to learn two things at once because yep. uh, it's easy to get overwhelmed. Yep. No, I totally know what you mean. I, uh, in fact, uh, yeah, just today I was uh, trying to tackle uh, building a Flask application with Python. And uh, I came on this thing where it was like, where they have these things called blueprints, uh, which I don't 100% understand, but I guess they're for organizing your application, like larger applications and sort of organizing them into modules and junk like that. And uh, that part was just, I just couldn't deal with that right away. You know, right. it was and just like too much at once. Right. And, and it's, it's a non-standard looking for help, you know, on stack overflow or whatever. Uh, the, the, the answers might not necessarily be relevant to your situation because you're a little bit off the beaten path. Right. Yep. Yep. So, so, so that, awesome. that side table aside, your real question was about testability and what's the right way to go about testing. Um, yeah, and and I get you know then I'm getting into specific things that I'm wondering about like well does it like having a global event listener and dispatcher does that you know does that really impact that stuff or is that something where you know it, it well how be about fine, right? how about we go back and go a little bit um, level lower no uh, about the te- about the testing stuff yeah because the PHP guy is sulking while you two JavaScript nerds <laughs> you're right so. I know that when I get asked about testing stuff, people usually sort of say, like, what's the what's the one or two things that I can do right away to make uh, my PHP code um, more testable? The, the two things I usually say is, number one, go buy a copy of my book, and then number two, start thinking about dependency injection. So uh-huh. um, so when you get people, uh, clients and other stuff, when you start talking to them and they say the same thing, I want to start testing my JavaScript code, what are some of the things that you tell people from from, from when, when they have no tests in place and they want to get some tests done. What kind of like what kind of strategies do you suggest to them? So um, it's a great question, and I think it's uh, it's a great question because it seems to come up um, during every engagement that I've got with somebody, uh, or 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 after every single conference talk that I give. One of the things that I've noticed in the last couple of years uh, is that viewing tests as we have all of these different sort of like, like 
of the application stack, we have all these layers of the onion, right? We have like little tiny objects and those, you know, maybe roll up into modules and, and those load up into applications and, and, and so on. And viewing uh, tests symmetrically, as in like maybe we have four or five different layers of tests defined for our applications. Like we have maybe isolated unit tests and then we have unit tests and then we have maybe functional tests and integration tests and then acceptance tests that are below the UI and then also tests that, you know, uh, uh, UI automation tests, like at the very highest level, um, or maybe even, you know, remote UI application tests that are in a completely separate process. So you could define like seven different layers of tests. And I think a lot of teams get really, um, in earnest and, and out of like sort of a, um, uh, a sense of professionalism, they'll go gun ho at, at down one of those paths, seven times down each layer a little bit but never really achieve kind of, you know, full coverage of the application at any level. And, and it causes not just the um, novices on the team, but even the experienced people on the team to force themselves to ask really low-value questions like, well, what layer of test is appropriate next? Like, if I've got this thing, what's the right test for it? And I've seen teams churn on exactly that question or even not churn and just, you know, arbitrarily pick one. Um, and, and what they end up with tend to not, you know, you might predict, not be really maintainable test suites. Um, so instead, I'm trying to turn people's focus a little bit to ask themselves, you know, well, what am I trying to accomplish with, it, with this test? Like, tests are good at several things, and two of the things they're really good at, in my opinion, is test-driven development is really, really good for helping us improve our design by forcing us to think hard about the code that we're going to write. And... Um, you know, full stack tests and, and web automation tests and well integrated, you know, tests, those are pretty good as uh, regression tools to make sure that, you know, uh, the code, the application does what we think it's going to do under certain situations. Um, and, and if the person asking the question is clearly looking at regression and they don't have any tests yet, I'm going to tell them, write a smoke test, you know, using uh, uh, maybe Cucumber and Capybara or, or WebDriver. Uh, or some sort of full-stack automation tool that tests through the UI just the happy path through your system and make sure everything is glued together at the end of the day and, and the, you know, the lights are on. Like that's probably the most valuable test that you could have to, to verify that the application is working, uh, if you could only have one test, right? Um, but, but on the other hand, if, if what they're finding is that my PHP code isn't testable, or if my JavaScript code isn't testable, um, then I, I, you know, start steering them towards um, probably something new, like teaching them how to do basic, um, if it's JavaScript with Jasmine, uh, teaching them very basic, just how to build a test, basic test-driven development, um, show them what the objects and the functions that they develop look like after they've been test-driven, and then compare and contrast those with the types of functions that they were writing previously. Because um, one of the hard things to do, we were just talking about don't learn two things at once. One of the hard things is that anyone who's like, you know, comes to you with this question and has a big, you know, amount of legacy heritage that they've, they've got in their lab is, you know, learning is expensive. So if you can learn on the code that you're already getting paid to work on for work, um, you know, that kind of counts. Maybe, maybe I'm not making too much of a sacrifice of the company dime. And so I'd like to learn about testing, but with this big ball of legacy JavaScript. Um, that I don't think works very well because then you're learning both legacy code rescue and also test-driven development and also basic testing. And, and that's just way too much to chew off. Like I view Michael Feather's book, um, 
working effectively with legacy code as being sort of the standard bearer for how to rescue legacy legacy code. And Michael Feathers is one of the smartest guys in the business. And that book is really, really long. And it's a hard read because it's a really hard thing to do. So, so sending a novice after a legacy code rescue to try to, like, you know, tease out testability uh, with, you know, functional tests that, that provide a safety net, followed by refactoring, followed by unit test characterization, followed by getting rid of whatever scaffolding functional tests that they have. That's just a lot of work, and that takes a lot of understanding and mastery over testing. So Yeah, I totally agree with you because that's kind of – I mean I kind of approach it the same way when I talk to people. I say if you have a really old and crafty uh, PHP application, um, getting in there and refactoring and writing unit tests is probably not a wise investment of your time. Yeah. So again, I tend to approach it from that kind of layered approach. Um, I like the onion. That is a really good analogy. I tend to say the first thing you should try to do is – is you could use something like um, cucumber, or even like because um, um, I've been doing this stuff at my at the current day gig uh, using Behat, which is a PHP port of cucumber, I guess for lack of a better okay. uh, label. Been, been using that to kind of wrap to do user acceptance tests. But I think something like that is also a very useful tool if um, if you do have. I mean, despite the fact that people do work on a huge code base, in many ways, an old legacy app is a black box and it's almost like a it's a black box that has a transparent case on it because you can see all the shit that's in there but you can't get in there and change anything uh, mm-hmm. with any sort of meaning uh, with any in, in any sort of meaningful time frame so you just kind of start off with wrap the application in tests so that from the user perspective it's behaving the way that you expect and then you can then after you've got those tests then you can start digging Carving down it up. And, and yeah. yeah you know cuz you're right i mean i i, I don't have a couple of a uh, couple god i can't even talk a copy of um Michael Feather's book. It's one of those books I keep meaning to get. And you're right. It does look like an incredible slog to go through from uh, start to finish. But I don't really think it uh, a topic like that is really one that you can just approach from start that's, to finish. That's, that's definitely going to be a quote on the next edition's dust jacket. <laughs> an incredible slog by Michael Feathers. Um, <laughs> he'd love to hear it. Um, yeah, and I, I think you're right. I mean, the part of the reality is that many developers are going to work on the same legacy code base. And when I say legacy, I use Michael's definition. He says that legacy code is any code without tests. Um, uh, so, so, you know, new legacy code is being written by all of us every day. Um, part of, of the challenge being a consultant and generally rotating to new projects every six to nine months or so uh, uh, is that I can very quickly fall out of touch with folks who are living in the same code base for maybe five, ten years. Uh, and to tell them that, well, you know, learning this TDD thing is hard if you're dealing with this legacy, so just punt on it and go and try it on something new, that might be impractical. Um, but, you know, at the same time, uh, uh, what you said is generally the advice I give when people are, are finding themselves in that state. Uh, and this is pretty much what Michael's book says, is, you know, wrap functional tests that just make sure that it's working from the user's perspective and then go to town refactoring to poke holes in so that uh, what he calls seams so that you can squeak in to that legacy system uh, and then write uh, 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 first refactor and then write smaller tests against smaller units um, that define what that behavior should be um, to, to uh, I think I think it might have been Ed talking originally about you know what to make visible and what to not make visible in his JavaScript code is JavaScript has like the same sort of black box um, uh, dichotomy. Um, if you look at the backbone examples, like the backbone to do app that we talked about a little bit, uh, if you look at the backbone to do app, I think it, it all happens in an anonymous closure. 
and it immediately instantiates all of the objects that it defines, and none of them are actually exposed globally, which means that if I'm trying to write a unit test against it, I literally can't get to anything other than what's already been printed on the page. Right. And so clearly, um, to, 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 for, for, in terms of like, you know, encapsulation, cause I'm not building an API at all. Cause there's no named functions that are available to me. Right. Um, it's, it's, could, all, it's all private, right? Yeah. So I could, I could, you know, and I've done this, I, I could, I could simulate click events on the to-do application, uh, and then verify through just jQuery that stuff on the page happens. Uh, and that would be a very, you know, realistic functional test. Right. But un- until I provide a seam, like, you know, exposing one of those, each of those maybe backbone um, objects, like the views and the models, exposing those on some sort of globally accessible namespace so that I can instantiate them under my own terms in my own unit tests, uh, uh, I can't write, you know, I can't do TDD, I can't do unit testing. But on the other hand, you don't want to take it to the extreme and make absolutely everything ever visible if you really want to have the benefit of encapsulation either. So so for a non-classical object-oriented programming language like JavaScript, where we just don't have a class, which is a really easy boundary for us, uh, you have to kind of figure out where that is for yourself, what to make private, what to make public, and, and how much to sweat over that distinction. Yeah, I dig you. You All right, that's it. Time. Good night. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything, because last time I started asking questions, you were like, Hey, how about we shut up for a minute? Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, not you. I'm. A, I would only criticize Chris. I only ever yell at him. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm all. I'm all worked up today because of the LinkedIn hack, and I spent the last 45 minutes by myself with my one password updating the 48 goddamn websites that that I've used this reused, really old password on that I also happen nice. to have used on LinkedIn. But at least I have one password, so I know which ones I've got that password on. Yeah. The, um, the so. worst are those guys who made that application that like lets you just <laughs> enter in like your password on a form, and it just looks it up for you. These guys are dicks. They made it easy for everybody. And they yeah. even put this really sarcastic name for it, like leaked in or something. I don't know. Leaked on? Leaked, leaked in. on. I don't know. I know. Mm. Jerk off. Um, so, you know, the... Uh, so I, I I I don't have a good follow up on that. So Paul had a question, which I guess is kind of related, so re- you know relates to this, but maybe it's just it's more of a general kind of application structure question. But Paul was asking, um, he said, "Where is a good resource to learn better ways or the quote unquote right way to structure your JS within a file?" I feel like I've evolved to have a good answer for PHP, but I'm less sure with something event driven like JS. Uh, you didn't make me laugh, Paul. Um, so I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. And that, I mean, I think that kind of ties into you know how you structure stuff file-wise, how you structure stuff object-wise relates to you know how you're gonna how you're gonna do how you know how you test things and how you're able to test things and stuff like that. So I'd be interested to hear what you think about that, Justin. If there's yeah yeah yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think that the um uh, just be, be just because JavaScript is so less formal about uh, in terms of just rules, right? Like like Java has language rules about at the file level what abstractions you can stick in there, like one public class, right? right. Um, with JavaScript, there's no such rules, and so so uh, the the where you choose to carve out file boundaries is totally up to you. Um, what I personally do um, is I look at what the project's like asset management 
um, capabilities are like, like how are we concatenating all this JavaScript? How are we, how are we shrinking it all? How are we G zipping it? And how are we, you know, uh, uh, getting that to production? How are we caching it? Right. Okay. Like if, if that strategy is not up to snuff, then it's possible that adding a bunch of different files is, is actually just going to make the user's experience terrible. Um, because, because if you're using like internet Explorer, I think eight or earlier, uh, and this is all tribal knowledge, but I don't have a citation for this, but, but, Older versions of IE will only make two synchronous web requests at a time for each of the resources that a website has. So, so if we have you know like hundreds of scripts loaded, uh, it'll only load two simultaneously at any given time. And 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 because that's all you know um, um, uh, blocking and all serial, it might take them a very long time to download all your JavaScript. So, so the first step is to get a really nice asset you know management strategy in place, like something part of your build. Um, but before your code hits users, and every tech stack has a different best solution. Um, Rails is popular for you know the asset pipeline that that, that came out late last year uh, with Rails 3.1, and that's that's probably my favorite, and that's what I use. And as a result, I've been writing lots more CoffeeScript and lots more really really tiny files um, because it's the first time in a while that I've been able to. Um, do you, do you guys know what equivalents there might be in uh, Python and PHP? Uh, for, uh, not, in PHP, I'm not sure there's anything that like I've, the asset pipeline is almost sort of magic. I've heard in Rails, but I'm not super familiar with it. Um, like most, and, the, and I would say there's nothing similar to it in Python either. Yeah, like most of the stuff we've where we've built stuff has been, we are using like other tools to do to basically we're running like a build script on deploy, right? So, um, so there's not, and it's, so it's not, it's not built into our frameworks. A lot of times we're actually just using like node, um, with maybe like with require, like uglify and stuff like that to just slam everything together. And, and if that happens in deploy time, as long as it's smart enough to pick up all your files and that it passes your tests, you know, that it was loading them in the same order that it would be loaded otherwise. Oh, I spoke too soon, gentlemen. There actually is one for PHP. I just found it doing a quick little search. It looks like it's tied into uh, um, Symphony, though. It's called. Oh, never Aesthetic. mind. Then. Don't even yeah, say the name. Just uh, leave. yeah, I know. We can just skip it on. I'll just I'll post the link to it in the uh, chat window, so the two people who like the framework, which shall not be named, uh, can go take a look at it. What the hell? What? And uh, uh, there's another one that I can think of off the top of my head. A, a friend of mine, John Andrews, over at Edge Case, uh, he wrote one called either Dieter or Dieter, D-I-E-T-E-R, that represents an asset pipeline implementation for Clojure. Um, and if you're in Java, I'm familiar with uh, 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 RWO for J, Web Resource Optimization for J, that does a lot of similar stuff, but for um, Maven projects. So, so, Justin, can you kind of explain a bit uh, to people who may not be familiar with what uh, an asset pipeline is, like what that oh, does, the, the, per, the reason of it and why it was why Rails uses it and why it might be a good idea for some uh, – uh, like the concept as a whole and, and how it fits in with a framework. Yeah, so, so Rails um, relies on a, on a handful of gems, but most, most um, uh, notably sprockets. Uh, to, to deliver this functionality that lets users define uh, what Rails terms as assets. Uh, that includes JavaScript or CoffeeScript, 
um, in uh, CSS or SAS, uh, and also any images. And so you, the, the, the from from Rails three to Rails three one, the full directory structure changed somewhat to support this. So you have like you know an app assets JavaScript uh, directory, an app assets style sheets directory, and so on. Um, what it does is it will look for for quote unquote manifest files, and manifest files are are simply. Uh, it'll look through really all of your JavaScript, say. So let's just focus on JavaScript. And in all of your JavaScript comments, it'll look for a sprockets directive, which looks a lot like a comment starts with an equal sign followed by a directive like the word require, and then followed by um, you know a, a, a local path to some other JavaScript file. And so typically what a manifest looks like, most applications are only going to have one, two, or three, uh, usually application.js. And in that manifest, in the comment, they'll say, you know, require this, this file because maybe I have underscore as dependency. So I'd say, you know, comment equals require underscore, comment equals require jQuery, comment equals require backbone, and, and then comment equals require tree, period, and require everything that's underneath this directory from that point forward. That way you can still control the basic load order, but you've specified to Rails, you know, when, when a user hits application.js, that path, um, the asset pipelines contract is to say, we will look at all those directives and we'll make sure that the user will get everything that's been specified, all those different paths that have been specified by your manifest uh, at runtime. Now, in, in development mode, it means it's going to like literally go and look for all those things and, and, and throw them at you. But when you're running in production mode, they will have all been pre-compiled and pre-gzipped. And, and uh, each of those potential manifests that the user might call have already all been pre-calculated, and they're easily cached. Um, and so in production mode, it's nice and easy, and you're just guaranteed that it's going to behave the same way that it does in development. And it's going to be nice and fast and, and compressed. Um, and that's important because having a whole lot of files load is slow, and having a whole lot of uncompressed files load is slow, and having a de- uh, deployment script that runs separately but might possibly load your JavaScript in a different order than it would in your development server means that um, you know that that opens the door to the potential um, you know behavior not really being the same in development as production, which is an awesome idea. <laughs> so just to interrupt, uh, showing how, how the wonders of science and the Internet that uh, we were able to quickly put a lie to our, our initial thoughts on what other um, versions of asset management and pipelining stuff that there is. We found one. Um, there's also one. According, we have Mark Story, one of the uh, lead devs for the uh, very rarely used Cake PHP framework. <laughs> he does one that he does one for Cake, and also I found one for the Python folks. So we'll add these things to the show notes for people who want to take a look. Yeah. So uh, yeah. Right, so we did that instead of listening to you, Justin. So oh, that's we, fine. we didn't really hear anything you said. But we'll, because we'll move we'll, on, right? I, yeah. Listen. Besides, we we all we listen to the episodes multiple times because we're big egoists. So yeah. Right. Just, yeah. I just I go on my all my runs and just listen to that. I don't do any runs. So. You listen to it when you have the runs? Is that what you said, Ed? Yeah, actually, that's what sort of gets me going. Yeah. Uh, oh, wow, that killed it. All right, yeah, keep going. Yeah. Um, what were we talking about? I don't even know. Hey, so what do you... Asset pipelines and rails and how it, the, it it's a little bit more of magic that basically collects everything that you want to shoot out in terms of web assets, JavaScript and other things, and 
puts them all, mashes them all together into one nicely compressed request. Is that kind yes. of a, a nice sarcastic summary of it, Justin? Absolutely. And you guys asked earlier what backend I use, and I tend to use Rails just because the asset pipeline is pre-configured for me and really easy. Another aspect of it that I missed was that um, uh, by looking at the file extensions that you use, it will try to line that up with a preprocessor for that code. So the way that it supports CoffeeScript isn't anything you know hard-coded into Rails. It's just simply that any file that ends in coffee uh, will uh, uh, sprockets will go and search through that, and then um, I think it's called tilt a gem that is uh, for for defining templating languages, and it will first preprocess that file with tilt against the CoffeeScript templating language, and uh, compile all that down to JavaScript for you. Same thing goes with um, like SAS files. So if you name your file something something .css.sass or .scss. Um, it'll pick up on that file extension and pass that through SAS before you know converting to CSS. And you can actually have multiple preprocessors. You know, you can have HTML.js.erb or whatever, and and have a ridiculous chain. I guess not HTML.js.erb, but I have, I've seen often JS.coffee.erb where somebody might need to actually have like server side code in the coffee script before it becomes JavaScript. And it's almost um, uh, I, I suppose. That power seems inappropriate to me, but it it, it does come in handy. Um, it should be inappropriate to you. Yes, you should yes. have multiple languages in one file. I oh think. gosh, yeah, I <laughs> definitely agree. Although I've written a lot like that, so yeah. yeah, yeah, me too. And one final thing that it does that's really nice is it supports um, JSTs, where JST stands for JavaScript template. So if I define, uh, and this is where the preprocessing really shines is that if I define a file that's called um, say like table.jst and I put some HTML in it, that's going to be available to me as a JavaScript function when I'm actually like as a global JavaScript function um, when I'm in my page. So I can say JST and then, you know, use um, the like array accessor and pass it the path to wherever that template lived and then invoke that as a function. I'll get that HTML back, but I can also say jst.eco or EJS and use ERB-like syntax with CoffeeScript or JavaScript, you know, uh, respectively, and and basically get you know really nice client-side templating, but with you know separate files, all preloaded for me, all pre-compiled for me, so that there's no performance hit for the client, and I just invoke those templates whenever I want, and I have them all ready for me, which is really handy in conjunction with Backbone. Nice, yeah, that is nice. We're using. We've been, or at least the last stuff I've been using, we've been using handlebars with a, like a custom loader for require that uh, that does that compilation for you. So yeah, and there's so handlebars and 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 JS Haml equivalents and, and probably a dozen other um, preprocessors that have already been built just for Tilt, just for the asset pipeline. So so it's just tremendously convenient. Nice. Yeah, I, my Rails applications tend to have you know about eight lines of Ruby code. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's it's mostly I'm just there for the asset pipeline lately. Nice. Um, so uh, somebody mentioned mustache in the channel too. I uh, I uh, we started using handlebars I think because there was just like the sort of felt like mustache was a little too like a little too simple. Like it, yes, there, for, for listeners who aren't familiar, um, mustache is a templating language that is intentionally extremely restrictive. You can pass it an object like you can pass the template an object. Uh, but you can't call methods, um, and iteration is really hard too. Uh, so the idea is you can like display data with your template, but uh, view logic is really really hard to come by. And it, I think that the I don't know the author of Mustache or even who it is, um, but I think the the opinion of the author was that 
Um, too much view logic is bad, so let's write a templating language that makes it impossible. Um, and so mustache sounds like a really good idea if you've been burned by a lot of view logic. Uh, but then in practice, on day three, because you have to figure out how to work around it. Uh, and that's, right. I think, what Handlebars provides, right, is a, a structured way to provide helpers. Right, and it gets even worse when you, like, it, sorry, because one of the apparent interesting things about uh, Mustache is that there's implementations for so many different languages. Um, it becomes kind of problematic with some languages that make it tougher for you to say, like, dynamically attached methods to objects. Like, so if you want to, like, it's easy to compose a, a view object in JavaScript, right? You just attach, you know, if you you can just inline, you know, define some functions and and pass all those in as like a big hash or something like that, right? Um, uh, doing that in PHP gets a lot more complex because you can't just like write um, like little closure functions and attach them to the view object, right? You have to kind of define, you have to define those ahead of time or set up some kind of like crazy call thing that slows everything down. So it gets like the, I've done some stuff with, you know, mustache and PHP thinking that, you know, that was a, a, a appealing in that you could, you could share the templates between different parts of the stack. But uh, the reality of it, I felt that was that boy really had to put a shitload of effort into getting it to work with PHP because it's just not super malleable in that sense. Right. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of a big pain, but you know, what are you going to do? This, 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 uh, there's sort of like, um, always on the horizon, this, this dream that we're going to be able to share stuff between the server side and the client side. And every couple of years, some, some library or technology comes by that makes us think that we're going to be able to, (laughs) um, you know, so node, 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 node. Yeah. Right. So the only thing that I'm really excited about the idea of node. I don't really do any node development myself. Um, cause I just don't have a server side problems interest me less. That's why I'm doing JavaScript. So I don't want to go do node because like I'm literally less interested in server side problems. So I just don't, you know, see much of a need for it. Right. But, but if some framework were to come along that was as, as slick as rails and really nice, and I was able to actually have a safe place to, you know, uh, keep common model objects or something. So I didn't have to define, you know, very obvious things like, what represents a valid, you know, person or item or invoice uh, on the client and server? I would really like that, but it's not there yet, as far as I know. Um, and and I'm not going to be the one to make it because uh, I'm way too lazy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I. Uh, it seems like every like six months or a year, somebody comes out with some kind of thing like that, especially in JavaScript, that's supposed to do that for you, and it, it demonstrates you know executing stuff on server and client in the same code base and. But it never seems to really kind of take off. Um, I remember, uh, shoot, what was that called? Jaxer, which was, I think, an Accelerator product um, from several years back, um, which predates uh, some stuff that now I can't think of right now. But then there's, like, the most recent one I remember is Meteor. Mm -hmm. Uh, And... uh, yeah, that's the most reason I can remember, and everyone was excited about that because I guess they didn't remember the six other times that somebody has actually done this. But um, or yeah, the GPL meter meteor. 
until they MIT'd it. Oh, right, right. Yes, I recall that, too. Oh, Derby. Yes, I remember. Yeah, Derby was another one. Uh, they're, they're, uh, um, you know, one of my friends, uh, he's a group developer. His name is Chris Powers. He's got a little, like, always an alpha project that's up this alley called drumkit.js, and I really like his approach. Um, yeah. I, th- I think it's got a lot of potential. Uh, it just needs more time and love. Uh, if, you, if you Google Chris, Chris Powers and uh, drumkit, You'll probably find it out on GitHub, and I think it's a really fresh approach. Hmm. Um, but you know, I know about it because I know Chris, and I bet you there's like you know a hundred other projects that are sort of kind of like it, uh, which is always JavaScript's problem. Uh, for something like this to be useful, it needs to uh, reach some kind of critical mass, like have a community form around it. I mean, like uh, half the reason why I like Rails is because there's so many smart people using Rails, right? Uh, so I can get questions answered easily, or other people have solved really easily solved problems for me already. And I haven't found that in Node yet, and when I do, maybe I'll switch, but um, I don't see uh, the language as being the most important thing in my stack. Yeah, I dig you. I dig you. I I think that's, I found that, you know, that's one of the things that's been appealing to me where I've been picking up Python stuff. It's really easy to be like, well, how am I supposed to do this? And there's like tons of resources already because so many people have already gone through this for you. And, mm-hmm. you, and, and you know, shoot, I've been doing PHP programming for like 15 years. And that is one of the nice things about PHP. So many people use it. Um, it is almost for certain that somebody has already dealt with the problem you have and has a solution for it or can tell you just don't do that. Right. So that's that's really appealing. Um, so yeah, I think the, I often think the community and the documentation and, and, uh, best practices that come with that are often underrated, uh, but they're really a big reason why I think you should consider, you know, adopting a certain technology stack or something. So one thing I was wondering about was it sounded like you were using Jasmine primarily for testing. Mm -hmm. Now I've only for testing in JS, like for unit testing, I've ever only used QUnit. And I think part of that was when I looked at QUnit, it was very simple, and I understood it right away, I felt like. So that appealed to me. Um, I was wondering uh, if you could talk about, like, why, say, you use Jasmine and or, like, how does that comp- – I'm, I'm interested, of course, how it compares to QUnit or other approaches that might be out there. Yeah, so so um, QUnit, uh, especially if the audience isn't familiar, the, the real big difference between QUnit and Jasmine is that QUnit is a traditional XUnit framework, um, just like JUnit or NUnit, or I, I presume there's a PHP unit. Um, there is, in fact, yes. Uh, and it's probably a lot like this, where where um, a test is specified by creating a, you know, a method that represents a test method. Uh, and inside that test method, we typically go through the three phases of setting up a test. So we have, you know, an arrange where we set up everything and then act where we invoke the thing that we're testing. And then some sort of like, you know, one or two assertion lines at the bottom of the test method that represent, you know, us setting up our expectations to verify that that, that test method is, you know, actually testing the thing that we want to happen. Right. Um, so that, that sort of old standby that I think was all inherited by um, JUnit um, uh, that has been ported to probably every language under the sun, and QUnit is the surviving uh, JavaScript framework that represents old school XUnit testing. And I say old school because it's it's wrong and dumb, and Jasmine's awesome, um, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, and and you know, it, QUnit wasn't the only one, but QUnit I think is probably the the um, the, the the biggest, most best maintained, and I think a big reason for that is that that's what jQuery's own test suite uh, right. runs on. Um, there were probably 18 others. I gave a talk about JavaScript testing 
I, I don't think I'd be able to find half of these with Google anymore, but I gave a talk on JavaScript testing a couple years ago, and I, I found 18 different JavaScript test frameworks that each, you know, were vying to be that, you know, X-unit replacement for JavaScript. Right. Uh, and most of them, you know, completely died out, maybe got used by two people for a lot of the reasons we talked about earlier, right, where there's just not a real JavaScript community and there's also not a real uh, uh, drive for most people to write really high-quality JavaScript or to test it. Um, so, so most of them fizzled out, but QUnit stuck around because jQuery stuck around because, I mean, you know, if you talk to a recruiter, most of them think that jQuery is a language. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so jQuery's ubiquity, I think has, has kept QUnit, um, uh, with a really healthy community that's kind of tagged along and that's, that's totally fine. Um, Jasmine, I, I like Jasmine, um, because before I, I started doing JavaScript testing, uh, I had already learned Ruby and RSpec. Um, and so Jasmine is sort of like a port of, you could, you could think of it as a port of Ruby's RSpec library for, for JavaScript. It's not quite, um, and, and they share a similar heritage, but I, I don't think that the pivotal guys would necessarily like me to call it a port. Um, but the idea there is that two, um, two, two big memes kind of emerged around that time that RSpec was, was, uh, being developed. One was, called Behavior-Driven Development, or BDD. Mm-hmm. And that was mostly an effort by several folks like Davis Stells and Dan North to uh, try to just change the lingo that we used. So, so test has this connotation of, okay, this thing's all done. You know, we've, 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 we've finished X, and now we've got to go test and verify. It, it just, like, very much sounds like something you do after something exists. Right. So test-driven development almost sounds like this paradox to people. Um, and, and also it's not really, it doesn't, it doesn't evoke any sort of thought about design or what something should do. Um, and, and so with behavior driven development, it all, it all started with a blog post, I think where, where Dan North, uh, found that he was writing a lot better tests when he asked himself, you know, what should this thing do and name his test methods. This should do X and this should do Y and this should do Z. And when he ran out of things that he could say the word should with, he just knew that was where he should stop writing tests because it's a common problem with X unit authors where, where they try to figure out, you know, like, well, have I tested everything? I can't really tell. Um, BDD, uh, using like a domain specific language, like the BDD frameworks do where they use the, you know, describe some unit and, and, um, you know, think of things in terms of given when then, or think of things in terms of, you know, describe and context and it and should, or, or expect and, and, trying to prompt the user into structuring their test in such a way that, uh, of course it's exhaustive and, and it's usually evidently exhaustive, uh, that, that we've covered everything this thing needs to be and, and that it serves as a specification as opposed to just a list of tests. Right. Um, that's to me the biggest value. Um, and that, but that's all social and cultural. Uh, one of the technical differences between uh, Q unit and Jasmine or uh, R spec and, and test unit or J unit is that the, um, uh, uh, RSpec and Jasmine style allows you to nest your example groups, nest your really like mini test suites. So, so if I say at a most outer block, and, and this sucks because we don't have any visual way of conveying this, but if you imagine an outer block of code that just says describe invoice, I can, I can have arbitrarily many, you know, inner test suites of that, that all kind of cascade nicely. So inside describe, say, describe um, uh, book, 
and and book might be a method on invoice. And so it would it would look just like its own little test suite, but it would only be inside of invoice. And so any setup I had for invoice, say like to set up an invoice object, it would just kind of gracefully inherit that. And so then I could have, you know, my test about book already have the thing from its parent. And and if I have multiple con- contexts about book, maybe I've got, you know, um, uh, the their their order is invalid and their order is valid are the, are the two different contexts I have. I can nest those as well as, as additional example groups. And so now each of those is a, a different test suite. And so um, that, that layering effect accomplishes something that you just don't get in traditional XUnit, which is really, truly dry specs, dry in the syntax sense. Hmm. Uh, you, you don't need to duplicate any lines if you're doing it well. Um, and, and, uh, if you if you take any amount of effort to try to format it nicely or to make it nice and readable, um, they they tend to be a lot more approachable, I think, because then you can leverage you know your text editor's ability to collapse code to really kind of navigate to the part that interests you. Whereas you have to really kind of you know bend over backwards to make an X unit test feel the same way. Right. Yeah, I can dig that. Oh, that's very interesting. Uh, but I don't think you know there's no right way to do it, of course, and and as long as you're you know getting the getting the benefit out of testing. I don't really care which one you use. Um, but I've kind of just invested a lot of time in Jasmine because it's easy to stick to one thing. Um, and so I've written a whole lot of different Jasmine helpers to make Jasmine testing easier. Um, and if you visit my, um, my GitHub page, I'm just Searles on GitHub, um, like pearls, but with an S in front of it. Um, I've got a whole bunch of, of Jasmine extensions that try to make it even easier. Um, one is called Jasmine given, uh, which is a port of, uh, and I realize this, I'm not responding to your question anymore. I'm just plugging little open source things I've done to that's, hopefully. That's perfectly fine. Yeah. Um, one is called Jasmine given, which is an alternative DSL that I use. So like, I just, I just went about selling all this BDD DSL stuff to you. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying, I don't really use it anymore. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, Jasmine given is, is a port of my, my good friend, uh, from Cincinnati, Jim Wyrick. Uh, he's the author of Rake, and he's just the, the, one of the most delightful people in our community. Um, oh, I saw him give a talk at CodeMesh on doing uh, TDD, and he used RSpec, and he ran through how to build uh, um, a Roman numeral to Arabic number, um, how to build one of those things and, and do it all with TDD, which was really awesome. Yes, and, and uh, I think I've seen him do the same presentation at SCNA last year. Um, he has a he has a, an RSpec alternate DSL called RSpec Given, and basically with RSpec uh, you have uh, and, and also Jasmine, but uh, I guess well they differ somewhat. In RSpec you have three uh, uh, terms that you use in its DSL: let to set up a variable before usually to you know take the action that you want, and then it to to set up your assertion. And those are a little awkward because you actually have to learn what each of those does and what they're for and what's different about them. Um, but but they serve very basic purposes that map really well to given, when, then. And so all Jim did, and I've actually read the source for this, and, and there's probably like 90 lines of comments and maybe 18 lines of Ruby code, and it's not even you know abundantly like clever meta Ruby code. It's really simple. It just aliases out given, when, and then, so that you can structure your, your, your RSpec code that simply. You know, like, given this, given this, given this, when this happens, then this, and then this. And that, that makes refactoring really easy. It makes it dead obvious because every statement has to fit on one line or else it looks really awkward. Um, and I wasn't sold at first, and I thought it was all, um, you know, just really silly, uh, until I actually went and visited um, him at his office at, at Edge Case Gaslight in Cincinnati, 
and uh, uh, got to play with it a little bit. And so that night I got really excited and I ported it to Jasmine. And at least when I'm using CoffeeScript, I, I haven't looked back. I, I think it's a much nicer way to structure my code. And I think it's more obvious for people who are, you know, reading it. That, um, sounds, that sounds like a really cool tool. Yeah, I like it. So uh, I have just Ed has given me the he's giving me the stink eye that he wants to wrap things I up. Didn't, so I was just talking, guy. I was asking our our great listeners. I was asking our listeners if they had any other questions. But. So uh, you know, plus our attention is starting to wander as we get into the later hours of the night for old programmers. So the question the, the the question that I had for you actually, and this will probably be a nice way to end things, is that um, we talked already about how there. There isn't really one kind of standard for doing things in JavaScript. Could, could you spend maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes talking about some things that you wish people would stop doing in JavaScript, that if they would stop doing them, that we could end up with having a better structured JavaScript code um, overall? Like some common anti-patterns that you see people doing that you wish they would just cut that shit out. Now, now, because you're a consultant, you get paid some nice bank to go and fix those problems when people do stupid shit like that. But um, it, it would be interesting to hear from your perspective some things where you see people doing in JavaScript all the time that you wish they wouldn't do. You know, it's funny because, like, uh, uh, I don't have a good answer to that question because I guess I just don't really approach it that way. Um, not a, not as hostile as, as Chris is. Well, well I'm, all about, I'm all about the aggressive. aggressive. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's, it's not like we're hurting for, for, for ways to write bad JavaScript. I think that's just <laughs> the, like the default for, for most people, myself included, for a long time. Um, I think that the most important thing uh, is that each of us individually find a way to, to get over hating JavaScript. I think, I think the vast preponderance of people out there have, have gone to great lengths or adopted frameworks and technologies that help them go to great lengths to avoid writing actual, like any amount of JavaScript of import. Um, you know, if you're a, a, an ASP.NET developer, you might have a whole bunch of different ASP widgets that, that Microsoft hands to you or that, you know, some proprietary um, vendor hands to you that, 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 provide you some Ajaxiness, right? So, like, if you need an autocomplete box, you don't actually have to write any of the JavaScript behind it, you, or maybe just one line or something like that. You just, you know, plop that into your server-side template, and then you wire it up to some back-end service according to some configuration. And then you're off to the races, and you have an application that's using JavaScript, but you're not the actual author of any of the JavaScript, right? Um, and, and the Ruby community between, like, you know, RJS and RubyJS and, and all the different, like, kind of partial magic and, and Rails UJS stuff that you have, uh, they've, they've produced year after year all sorts of different ways of getting around actually having to write JavaScript. Uh, PJAX is the latest thing that, that they're using for the next version of Basecamp. Um, and if you really don't want to write JavaScript, you can, you can go to great engineering lengths to do really interesting things to try to get dynamic behavior without it. Um, and that's totally fine, but if you're if you're at all interested in actually learning it, I think the first step is to um, shed shed that itch, shed shed, shed the urge to um, lean on some tool that's going to like you know make it easier for you. Um, I think in general, uh, one of the things I look out for is uh, any tool or practice or community or person who who claims to be able to make development easy. Because uh, development, of course, isn't easy. Application development is incredibly difficult. And acknowledging that it's incredibly difficult is usually the first step. Um, that's what I often like try to encourage people to do uh, to stop hating JavaScript is to kind of like, you know, work in a context where JavaScript is just a normal thing that you write. Um, 
Another thing that, that I think is important is to recognize that there's a really huge community out there um, and, and a lot of really cool stuff happening out on the GitHubs and the Twitters um, in terms of just uh, people really striving to make entire applications very, uh, you know, easy to throw together. Uh, if, you, if you look at the number of different, you know, frameworks and libraries uh, uh, that, that have, to, you know, a to-do app or something simple um, that, that seems really easy and magical, there's a lot of people who are trying really hard and all groping at the same thing to, to uh, help other people write more JavaScript or write JavaScript better. And I think that's a really, you know, it's a clear endeavor. <laughs> it's a clear, clear, clear uh, um, uh, indication that I think there's a lot of people sort of like all in the same fits and start stage of either trying to learn or trying to help other people learn uh, how to write JavaScript. And I think that, that just by taking a survey for yourself of what else is out there is probably important before you really, really dive in, you know, cause it's one thing to listen to somebody like me talk about, you know, well, I, pre- I prefer backbone.js for non-magical style frameworks and I prefer ember.js for more magical style stuff. But if, if somebody were to listen to that and then go and just commit to doing backbone and, and, and push on it really, really hard, they might be doing, you know, nothing more than mechanically trying to imitate what they heard somebody else say. Um, so, so really going in and investigating kind of what's out there, I think is important. Um, and, and sort of along the same lines, uh, there's been a couple good books, um, uh, uh, that I'd recommend one, uh, Douglas Crockford's JavaScript, the good parts is a good way to identify to your, to your question, Chris, um, a good way to identify a lot of the anti-patterns in JavaScript. A lot of the things smallest book ever. It is a small book, and, and there's a there's a lot of uh, it's a, I think 173 pages, um, uh, which is way too specific a number for that to possibly be right. But if anyone on IRC wants to see if I'm right, that would be great. Um, oh, don't worry, smart guy. I got a copy in my bookcase. I'm gonna go look right now. Yeah. All right, wonderful. So Ed, um, <laughs> since we just lost Chris, yeah, he's off doing that. Oh no, I'm here. Wireless headset, buddy. Don't worry. There it is. JavaScript, the good parts. It is. Let's see how close he was. I'm way off. 153 pages, including the index. Really? Oh, yes, 25. sir. Even even shorter. So there's no excuse. Um, right. Well, what it's really helpful for is, is identifying a lot of the pitfalls in the language. Because if you choose to go after just JavaScript, um, there's a lot of really stupid things. Like if you, uh, especially around equality and anything having to do with numbers and a lot of things having to do with dates. Um, uh, that book is really helpful. Another book that I think is really great is um, Pro JavaScript by uh, John Resig. He wrote this just as jQuery was this brand new thing. Uh, I think it's an A-Press book. And it's a really, you know, it's a semi-formal book. It's it's longer. Um, but it's um, a very reductionist look at language. So if you're a language geek, um, it's not a language specification by any stretch. But it's... Um, uh, it's it's at least formal and professional, which is right. way way beyond what you know most JavaScript that we find is for the same reasons we talked about earlier. Just people not treating JavaScript as being important or as a primary language. This book treats it that way, and and I've always really liked it. I think it, I, it's a little bit dated. I think the published date's like two thousand six, um, but but I'd strongly recommend it. Right. Um, you know, and and I, as far as individual anti patterns, I think that. Um, in the last 10 years or so, as TDD has gotten popular, as continuous integrations become mainstream, um, we've developed just so many practices for developing good, clean code. And if you're one of the people who've, who, who, who've 
adopted a bunch of practices to develop good clean code in some context, in some language, in some tech stack, all I'd ask you to do is try to find a way to apply those same principles and practices to all the code you write, whether it's JavaScript or, or Objective-C or whatever new language that you're you know, looking to take on. And the hardest thing to do, the biggest barrier is not knowing where to look, uh, not knowing you know, uh, how in this community somebody accomplishes you know, this particular practice. Uh, so, you know, I think that's why when I was talking earlier, I was kind of fumbling around trying to trying to find a way to express this. That's why I think that the JavaScript community right now is really exciting because a lot of people are starting to recognize that, that they're building entire applications in JavaScript. And so they need to apply the same level of craft. And so it's a great time to get in early still if you want to be a contributor to, you know, um, that zeitgeist, that, that you know, uh, bundle of really fundamental tools to make, you know, web development easier and better for everybody. But it also means that, you know, you're not going to have some magical framework that hands everything to you, um, you know, off the shelf, out of the box on day one, uh, like you might with a lot of the more mature, especially especially Java EE and, and .NET environments. Um, yeah. And, and if you have any questions, if you're listening to this, I don't know how many people listen to you guys. You have uh, – Well, they've all left by now, there. Justin. It's, uh, we, we tend to ramble on, so a lot of people probably already dropped out. But well, it's, sure. It's all good, bro. Yeah, we yeah, well, about, if, like 10 if, you're on, if you're online uh, or if you're if, if you're listening to the recorded version of this, uh, feel free to hit me up on my Twitter account. And I and as a listener to this podcast, I will uh, uh, promise to respond to any questions that you have. If you're looking for something uh, in the JavaScript world, I'll try to put you in touch with somebody who can help you or point you to a project that might help. Uh, and, and my Twitter handle is my last name, which is S-E-A-R-L-S. So hopefully that'll help. Right on. Yeah, well, that's that's really cool. Um, did you have a – was there a book that you did, something like that, that you were plugging? Um, no, I haven't done a book. Um, Good. It's terrible. You don't make any money. Don't do it. Yeah, I've heard that, and I, also, I don't have the attention span. I require uh, feedback from people way more quickly than a year. Yeah. Um, right. But one thing I, Dude, I, I wrote a book in two months. Don't be so insulting. Yeah, but that's that's it's not really a book. It's like a oh snap! It's a pamphlet. Yes, as my wife likes to tell me. Nice, man. Attract. Um, so so <laughs> attract. Nice. That's great. I have uh, to plug. Uh, other than my company, my company's name is Test Double. And if you if you have any software or or if you're interested in some JavaScript training or just like a little bit of advisory, um, uh, my company's web address is test-double.com. Uh, and right now we're also doing, we're prepping to do some training that's going to be held at Chicago, which I hear is a really, you know, awesome building. Uh, say, so, hey, could you say that again? Because I think you might have cut out. What? Where in Chicago? So in Chicago uh, at Groupon's HQ, we're going to be doing a training soon. Oh, that's right Jasmine, Backbone, and CoffeeScript in three days. Uh, it's uh, me and Chris Nelson, Gaslight Software, are going to run it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're really, really excited. And if you're interested, you can find all the details at training.gaslightsoftware.com. Training. Training, yeah, cool. That's very cool. Well, I think we're kind of at a good stopping point here. We should uh, we should thank our fine sponsors, Chris. 
Yes, once again, uh, thank you to our fine sponsors. Uh, Engine Yard, one of the trailblazers of the platform as a service uh, area. Also, the awesome folks at Orchestra, who is Engine Yard's uh, pl- PHP platform as a service. In fact, during the PHP Tech Hackathon, our wonderful uh, project that I did with Daniel Cousineau, Fwoosh, which was a link shortener with a very awkward, nightmare inducing twist, was uh, run on uh, and is still up and running on. Uh, uh, on um, orchestra, and also we want to thank Paul Reinheimer and his slave Will from um, Wonder Network for uh, <laughs> for agreeing to host the video from our live uh, podcast at Tech Twelve, and also for hosting the uh, stream uh, for this podcast. Uh, Justin, thanks so much for coming on. This was really awesome. Yeah. You dropped a lot of hardcore uh, knowledge on us, and I have to thank uh, Elizabeth for. Uh, getting us to hook together so that a bunch of testing nerds can talk about stuff that they find super important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun. Right on. All right. So this has been episode 14 of the development, blah, blah, development hell podcast. As always, you can find us on Twitter at dev underscore hell. The website is devhell.info. You can find us on iTunes. Uh, on this side, it's uh, Chris Hartis, grumpy programmer on Twitter, grumpy without the U. On the other side, Ed is Funkatron with the U. Thanks so much for listening, and we will talk to you all soon. Good night, everybody.